0: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com slash Acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash Acast. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture... ...and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jim Daduchu... ...and what we're doing this time round is... ...I'm presuming it says... ...a clash of civilizations on the front of this episode. That's going to get your attention, isn't it? Well, today, this time round... ...I'm talking about a dark side of pop culture. If you think about it... ...generally, when I talk about the pop culture bit... ...that's quite light. Indeed, I've had a conversation behind the scenes with Greg... And we're talking about the editing and how it's fun hearing him putting in sort of silly little comments and snippets and things like that. Never quite sure what he's going to do and it always puts a smile on my face. Like, for example, the time when he managed to stitch together Liam Neeson in the movie Silence where he's playing a Jesuit priest and Liam Neeson playing a Jedi in Star Wars. Nobody has ever decided to put those two bits of Liam Neeson together until Greg did. Well done, Greg. I'm here because I'm thinking of... uh... I'm thinking of doing some comedy or the other one when I made a passing comment about you wouldn't criticise Pride and Prejudice for its lack of car chases and he then promptly took a bit of Pride and Prejudice and stuck in the noises of car chases to it well done him but obviously they kind of fade away as I do the podcast is that down to time and he said no Jem. it's because if you're talking about a very serious subject I can't just put in some comedy things that would obviously sort of ruin the whole effect which is absolutely valid I thank him very much for that. So if you think about it, I generally start light and then go serious because a lot of pop culture is fun, for want of a better phrase. So this is a shout out to John. John, hi, I'm not going to mention your surname. You specifically requested this episode. I hope you enjoy it. It's an example of, hi, hi, everybody. I'm Jem, and I do take requests. I would love to talk to people on Twitter, at JemToDoChew on Twitter. It's the place I usually hang out if, you, if by the time you hear this, Twitter's gone under. Then Facebook, I'm History Gems with a G on Facebook. Happy to say hi there. So yeah, absolutely. I will listen to requests. If you come up with an interesting one, with an interesting angle, always willing to give it a go. Might take me a while before it comes out but john this is for you what we're doing this time round actually is where we're talking about a rather negative bit of pop culture and again this is where i emphasize pop culture is literally the abbreviation of popular culture and in europe there has been a very negative bit of popular culture that has been around for more than a thousand years and i am sad to say is still going strong today what am i talking about i'm talking about islamophobia which probably wasn't what you thought i might start off with and kick off with and this is really really interesting to me because i guess i've got some skin in the game on this one as i have mentioned if you're a regular listener the name is jem daduchu clearly that is not an anglo-saxon surname but you can tell from my accent that i've clearly been brought up in britain probably the southeast yeah you're right Anyway, the point is, my father, and where I get this name from, is Turkish. And my mother is actually American. Now, my father is a lapsed Muslim. And my mother is a lapsed Methodist Christian. And me and my sister inherited the lapsed bit. I am not religious at all. But obviously, I have half my family are Muslim and half my family are Christian. A few atheists thrown in there as well. So the point is, ever since I was a little kid, I've been surrounded sometimes with Islamic ceremonies, Islamic weddings, and things like that. I've just thought them as normal as going to anybody else's religious ceremony. I went to a Catholic school, and I studied the Crusades first at school and then on to university. And when I was little, I'm talking about like fourteen, fifteen. The reason why I loved the Crusades then was a little part of my brain was like, well, it's either the Europeans versus the Turks and seeing I got both blood in me, I can't lose, which is obviously a very silly, infantile way of looking at a period of huge amounts of religiously motivated violence where tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people died over several centuries in the Middle East and for longer in other parts of the world. So that is a very flippant, silly way of looking at it. I guess it shows you that I've always, I guess subconsciously, been able to see it from both perspectives. And this is where I want to sort of get in with you. And you might be thinking, well, hang on, whoa, 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 Jem. You're talking about the Crusades, for heaven's sakes. Nobody thinks like that anymore. And I'm going to turn around and say, oh, yes, they do. In fact, they've been doing it as recently as 2022 In an area which you might not have necessarily thought about in terms of that. So, this is a really big topic, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through it from both perspectives. Okay, so in the 600s AD, a merchant in the peninsula of Arabia basically was filled with some kind of ecstatic Holy Spirit and became a prophet. And this man was known as Muhammad. And so the Prophet Muhammad is where you start the conversation about Islam. Now, I'm aware that there are some historians, most notably Tom Holland, who I have a huge amount of respect and love for. If you ever listen to this podcast, thank you. He's written a whole book saying that the debate between Islam and Christianity is that Christianity comes from religious texts that everybody knows weren't written contemporaneously to the life of Jesus Christ now if you are a strict Christian and this is sort of shocking you please I encourage you to look into historical biblical information archaeology etc it's absolutely confused and made more complicated by what we actually know from the time that isn't in the Bible. Now, if the Bible is your truth, great, good for you, you do you, that's fine, but I'm talking about history, and anybody who's a biblical scholar will tell you that really the earliest one of the four gospels is likely to be Matthew which was written roughly round about six basically he was the only one who had written it down before the burning of the temple in Jerusalem by the Roman invasion in the 70s AD so that one was written probably around about 60 AD and everything else was written after the fall of the temple and therefore it is conceivable that we genuinely have one of the apostles writing towards the end of their life the story of Jesus. But as we all are aware, if you're trying to remember something that happened 30 years ago, you're not going to get it spot on. And particularly when it comes to speeches, those have to be general themes that have been turned into a speech rather than word for word, definitely what Jesus Christ actually said. I think it was, blessed are the cheesemakers. What's so special about the cheesemakers? Well, obviously, it's not meant to be taken literally. It refers to any manufacturers of dairy products. So, if you are a biblical scholar, particularly of the New Testament, you are aware that there is this period of spirituality, of religiosity, before we get to the actual history. Whereas, Muslims have always said, The most impressive thing about Muhammad is we actually know that he existed, and because he was a real man who had wives and also therefore had children, there can be no doubt that he actually existed, and therefore the Quran was created in far more of a historical era. But it turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. For further information, have a look at Tom Holland's book on the topic. And basically what he's saying is a bit like the creation of the new testament there is like a generation where this stuff is all beginning to fuse together and it isn't quite as well i mean we know for a fact we have some very early qurans the qurans that we have are much closer to the creation of the qurans than the bibles we have towards the creation of the bible but we don't have the first one the original quran just simply does not exist so that is how it all starts we're in the 600s ad and basically the prophet muhammad dies about 662 ad now for the record the islamic calendar i'm doing a whole episode on basically the history of time and how timekeeping and things like that i'm going to use everything using the christian calendar by the way the whole ad bc thing that's obviously to do with jesus for heaven's sakes Whereas, that's not going to be relevant for Muslims, and therefore, when he leaves Mecca to go to Medina to found the first group of what we would now call Muslims, that is year one in the Islamic calendar. So, basically, Islam, while we're in the 21st century in the Christian calendar, they're in the 15th century in the Islamic calendar, okay? Fine, so... A lot more on that for another time. But when Muhammad dies, there's then this kind of tension between... Do we pass on the teachings, the power, the, the emphasis, the energy, if you like, of Muhammad's mission on earth... ...to the uncle who helped write the Quran and was sort of Muhammad's right-hand man... ...or to a son of Muhammad? And it's that kind of tension... That led to, very quickly, unlike Christianity, to some real power play between various Islamic families. So, for example, we've got from 632 to 661. Sorry, my apologies. I was thinking about... <laughs> this is the most pretentious thing I can say. Sorry, I wasn't thinking about the death of Muhammad. I was thinking about the Umayyad dynasty and the Umayyad caliphate. You Yeah, sorry about that. Basically, the Prophet Muhammad dies in the 600s, okay? Right, so from 632 to 661, we get the first caliphate, which is the Rashidun caliphate, which is deliberately or specifically linked to the immediate followers. These are the people who absolutely remembered the Prophet Muhammad running this group of peoples that end up conquering a large chunk of the Middle East. So this happens really, really quickly from 632 to 661. However, we now have the assassination of Ali, who is one of the family members of the Prophet's family. So it's this moment that sort of separates forever the difference between Sunni and Shia. The best way to think of Sunni and Shia is the difference between Protestant and Catholic, okay? They're both Christians. They really don't like each other. In this case it's not because if you looked at a Shia Quran, it is not different to a Sunni Quran. If you walked into one mosque or the other, you couldn't tell the difference, whereas you absolutely could tell the difference between a Protestant, particularly something like a sort of like a pure something like a Calvinist type church and a Catholic church, you would instantly be able to tell that there are differences between the two, not so much here. It is a political reasoning between these two, rather than an ideological or theological difference between the two. And the two have regularly fought wars over this, from that point onwards in the 600s to, well, today. So the the most populous and most powerful Shia country in the world is Iran. And Iran is trying to get nuclear weapons, and the richest, no way near the most populous, Sunni country is Saudi Arabia. And they stare at each other, glare at each other across the Persian Gulf, which is a phrase that generally the Saudi Arabians don't like using. So you've got these two incredibly important, powerful nations who, basically for reasons that go back over a thousand years hate each other's guts, okay? You could argue that if they put that to one side, there are all these different reasons to work together. But I think you already know that that's not how religion works. So after this sort of break, this assassination, we then get the Umayyad Caliphate from 661 to 750, and this is when Islam really explodes. Prior to that, it was throughout the Middle East, and now under the Umayyads. And Caliphate is basically, it's kind of a hard word to translate... You could say they're the emperor of this empire, but also they are the chief religious authority. So I guess it's the cross between emperor and pope, which obviously in Europe are absolutely separate. And this is why when you had in the early 21st century, you've got ISIS, the Islamic Caliphate. They are deliberately bringing back the caliphs again which I will explain a little bit more. So, uh, you know, I'm giving you some background here on Islamic history. If you are Muslim, you probably know all of this already. Maybe not, I don't know. It goes back a long way. It's quite complicated. And I'm doing my best to keep it simple, okay? So, this, with the Umayyads, is when the influence and power of the Islamic Caliphate explodes. At its peak, it has got all the way into northern India, to the east that is a very long way away from Saudi Arabia. And then, all the way west, we get to the year 732 at Poitiers in France, which is sort of middle-ish France. And we have a ragtag bunch of Christian soldiers led by a man called Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, and he fights and defeats the hugely successful Umayyad, army in the middle of france so it's basically from france to india is now muslim and ruled by the muslims it's not all muslim obviously they have christians living underneath them etc etc but that is a faster expansion of religious authority than any other religion in history christianity included in that sentence by the way Now, for the record, Charles Martel, because he has this victory, the Muslims are basically pushed back to the Pyrenees. But from the mid 700s till 1492, there is at least a part, for centuries of that, all of it, is owned by various Islamic powers. Okay, so 750 is when the Umayyad Caliphate collapses, and then I'm going to mention one more. So from 750 to 1258, so well into the Middle Ages there, we have the Abbasid Caliphate. Abbasid is also, as other people say, there are various different ways to pronounce this stuff. You can see that this is an incredibly large polyglot empire dealing with lots of different religions and other nations for centuries. And it's round about the year 800, we start seeing the golden age of Islam. If you've ever heard of things like Islamic philosophers and mathematicians, basically they existed from about 800 to 1258. Why do we know it ends in 1258? I've mentioned this in passing before, because at that point, Baghdad, one of the largest cities in the world, is the centre of the Abbasid Caliphate. And you have the last caliph there. Who stands up against the Mongols basically is incredibly arrogant to them and doesn't properly prepare the defenses of the city. And if you know anything about the Mongols, you don't annoy them and then fail to have an army to back up your attitude. And I think you can guess what happened next. And indeed, the siege and subsequent massacre of Baghdad is seen as one of the bloodiest moments in world history, at least. This is the thing. at least three hundred thousand people were killed. to give you an idea at that time, London had a population of forty fifty thousand, okay, and that was the largest city on the British Isles. Paris would have been maybe seventy thousand, so you get the idea. Baghdad is so much bigger that is the lower end of the kill count. The total number of deaths could be as high as half a million and nobody's using machine guns and gas and bombs, this is people hacking other people to death. And indeed, one of the other things that it is mentioned is that the nearby river Tigris ran black, not with blood, but with ink, because the Mongols chucked so many of these amazing textbooks into the river, destroying all this stuff forever. So that's what ended the caliphate, and that's why you had groups like ISIS trying to sort of revive the caliphate, but the last caliph was rolled up into a carpet and had a bunch of Mongol cavalry kick him to death, trample him to death. Not a nice way to go there. However, kind of getting ahead of myself there, so Europe's first proper introduction to... Islam was, as I said, 732, the Battle of Poitiers, and they arrived with a very large, very efficient, very fearsome army that in theory should have won the battle, but Charles Martel just had more tactics and guile to him, and he ended up winning that, saving in inverted commas, Europe from Islam. And it's that narrative from 1,300 years ago that's still used. You, You will get people who... Claim to be sort of very open minded, just sort of say, saving Europe, as if the, the Muslims were the bad guys in this situation. But as I've just pointed out, the golden age of Islam was happening at exactly the same time that the Vikings were attacking everywhere in Northern Europe. Basically, if it was the year 1000, where would you want to live? The answer is nowhere in Western Europe. I would love to live in islamic spain or somewhere along north the north african continent in one of these lovely garden filled cosmopolitan polyglot islamic great cities all the way to baghdad and then further into the, the middle of asia places like tashkent etc there are all these places which because they were all under one authority it meant that trade was good it meant that peace was ensured these were good times allowing people to sit down and write complex mathematics and philosophy and astronomy and so on and so forth for example al means generally the if you're ever wondering... Oh, hang on. I know's therefore, a bit of Arabic. There's Al-Qaeda. Absolutely. Al-Qaeda means literally the camp. And that name wasn't created by the terrorist group. It was used as basically, in essence, a shorthand. It, they weren't created by the CIA. They were created all by themselves. But the name was created by the CIA, and it just stuck. And it's an Arab phrase that even a Westerner can say without it being particularly hard or difficult to do so. So, yeah, al tends to mean the, and it's it's almost anything starting with al tends to mean that it was first described in some kind of Arabic text, presumably during the Golden Age. Don't believe me? Algebra is mathematics from the golden age of islam you've got something like algorithms which is again something that is created in islamic mathematics because muslims were using much easier number systems than the roman numerals which are awful for all kinds of reasons again i'll be talking a little bit about that in my time episode which is coming out at some point probably a month from now or something. and of course you've got alkaline and you've got alcohol which again was distilled ironically from a group that aren't meant to drink alcohol but they could actually create alcohol in basically scientific surroundings so hopefully i have sold you that islam was doing very well they were actually streets ahead of the rest of europe and when people sort of say that Islam's never been a part of Europe, that's just historically not true. Like I said, from basically about 700 to just before 1500, there were huge chunks of Portugal and Spain, certain points all of Portugal and Spain, ruled by Muslim people who didn't spend all their time persecuting Christians. Indeed, one of the things as part of Islamic law, Sharia law, is... You are obliged to protect people of other faiths. Now, they have to pay a tax. They're part of society, so they've got to pay a tax. It's an interesting idea. So you pay the tax, and therefore we are obliged to protect you. And that's very different to how medieval Europe worked, where basically, oh, you're Jewish, well, we might well kill you. Oh, you're Muslim, well, we might well kill you it's it's a far nicer system and indeed one of the things that christianity is all about is conversion we want to make everybody christian whereas there are quite a lot of islamic leaders throughout the centuries where they absolutely did not want their jewish and christian subjects to convert to islam because it would reduce their their monies sicily was ruled for centuries by arab Abbasid peoples. So the idea that Islam is alien to Europe is absolutely not true. The other thing that I'm going to put into here is that all of this expansion was not to convert everywhere it was just an empire expanding which is very different to 1095 in France the Council of Clermont where Pope Urban II declared in basically a field that We're going to do a crusade. The first crusade was preached there in 1095. It led to several different waves of Europeans heading east, but it was the last one, which actually had soldiers and knights in them, that was the most successful one, and that managed to capture Jerusalem in 1099. Now, Pope Urban actually said, you know, we're going to reclaim Jerusalem which is one hell of a statement because the Catholic Church up until 1099 had never directly ruled Jerusalem because Jerusalem was cutting a very long complicated story short, obviously it was a Jewish city, then the Romans took it over, then they got so annoyed at the Jews they actually destroyed the entire city, so there is nothing above... crown that actually is from the time of jesus christ because it was all raised after i mentioned the temple was destroyed and then later on so was jerusalem as a whole deliberately so and then it was rebuilt as a roman city several centuries later then we got the christianization of rome and therefore we get constantine and his wife going there specifically his wife finding places that are allegedly from the site and times of jesus which there is no evidence that they were but hey you're not going to argue with the emperor's wife now are you and mother basically this is all part of the roman empire now before you start saying well the same thing as the catholics absolutely not because when you've got the eastern roman empire you have jerusalem ruled directly by the patriarch of constantinople indeed originally the patriarch of jerusalem was the number one because it's the holiest city and then that gets taken over ...by the Persians, who at the time were Zoroastrian... ...and this is about a generation before the Muslims... ...and then the Muslims come crashing in... ...and they take it over... ...and from that point to basically 1099... ...it has been Muslim... ...so it was always... Jerusalem was always Muslim... ...far longer than it was ever Christian... ...we can argue about who had it longer... ...Muslims or Jews... ...that's a whole other thing, let's not go there... ...quite why... Pope urban the second thought that you know if you read there aren't any exact transcripts of the speech there's several different versions of the speech but they agree that this was the gist of what he was saying and if you read the various different transcripts or various different versions i should say they all agree on the same thing that it's it's almost as if oh we, we lost it last tuesday let's get it back again well you know it was within a generation or two not like it's never ever ever been something like that so That's the situation with Jerusalem and the First Crusade, and there was no Muslim equivalent to the Crusades. As they were expanding, they weren't killing and murdering and slaughtering. When the Crusaders arrived in Jerusalem in 1099, it was followed with an orgy of violence, and all of the chronicles around that are under no illusion about how devastating and destructive the arrival of the Crusaders were in the Holy Land. And then we've got 200 years of them being in the Holy Land and eventually getting kicked out by, funnily enough, the Muslims. Then we've got bits of the Mongols crashing in there as well. And so we then get to the 1300s. And throughout the 1300s, there's a completely new player in town, which becomes known as the Ottoman Empire. Now, in the first 150 years of the Ottoman Empire, they end up getting four different capital cities. Two of them are in modern-day Anatolia, modern-day mainland Turkey, and the other two end up being in the European bit of Turkey. And, obviously, in 1453, they capture, and the fourth and final one is Constantinople, which remains the capital city of the Ottoman Empire into the 20th century. The Ottoman Empire collapses in the 1920s. But again even though at its peak the Ottoman Empire ruled all the lands around the Black Sea, so the Black Sea was an Ottoman lake, that was its nickname, and managed to place its lances, managed to fight twice, besieged twice. Vienna, which is pretty far into Europe, for several centuries they ruled Hungary for more than several centuries they ruled places like Serbia and Bulgaria and Romania, these are all sounding vaguely familiar to you and kind of European, and of course Greece for many many centuries so, when you put all that together the idea that Islam is somehow foreign and alien to Europe doesn't stack up to what the actual history is showing us but, here's the thing with the Crusades, It's an easy target. Who doesn't want to fight for God? And if you die, you're guaranteed to go to heaven, particularly if you're a knight where you're going to have to do some fighting, and that's definitely one of the deadly sins, and I could end up going to hell. So the Crusades very much reinforced the idea that the battle between Christian and Muslim is a noble deed, okay? It's a just war in essence. The reality, again, if you actually look at the Crusades, there were at least eight of them in the Middle East. There were other ones, but the Albigensian Crusade was the longest crusade. That was in France, run by French knights against French people in France, but some of them were heretics. So, yeah, the Crusades is a pretty complicated situation. I've written a book about it. It's called Deus Volt: A Concise History of the Crusades by Jem de Ducci. You're more than welcome to get that anywhere you would get books because it's published through Amberley Publishing. Thank you very much. So you can find out a lot more through that, and this is what I obviously know about this stuff. So anyway, there was no Muslim equivalent. When the Ottomans started expanding into Europe, it wasn't for some religious reason, it was because it was an empire, eating away at a much weaker, older empire called the Byzantine Empire, the remains of the Eastern Roman Empire, which ultimately, by the 1450s, was little more than just the city of Constantinople, which could be surrounded and conquered even though those walls had resisted just over 20 different sieges from all kinds of civilizations from the time that they were built to 1453 so it was an amazing moment and indeed there was an islamic element to it and this is where i have to sort of get slightly technical i'm going to talk about three things and then i'm going to bring it all to to modern day okay so if you know anything about Islam, and I've already mentioned it, the religious book for Muslims is the Quran. So the, the Muslims learn from some of the mistakes of the Christians. And so one of the things about for many centuries is the Bible was only in Latin if you were in Europe, other oh, languages in other places. But the idea is you can only truly read the Quran in its original Arabic, which is a lovely idea, but you then have to learn not just Arabic, but medieval Arabic, which is kind of hard to do. That's something that goes on there. So the Quran is the main book. It's actually, I'd encourage you to read a an English language version of it. It's very practical compared to something like the Bible. There are far fewer parables in there and things like that. There's literal instructions on how to fight a just war and things like that which is all about defending the innocent you know you fight the enemy but you don't go around killing civilians so that's that then you've got the hadiths and that's the thing that turns out being the most problematic for islam this is a collection of alleged sayings around the prophet muhammad which even in the golden age of islam people realise, hang on Some of these are contradictory, some of these are basically the same, slightly rephrased, and some of these don't seem to stack up to the rules that are in the Quran, so they are very problematic, and when people start talking about, you know, victimization of women and things like that, that is in the Hadiths, it's not in the Quran, but it's like a secondary body of holy words, which some more extreme Muslims are going to put efforts on and emphasis on than others more moderates would generally sort of push them to one side and sort of say "Mm, yeah we don't really talk about them and then you got Sharia law which is the way you run an Islamic country which if you compare Sharia law to how let's say England was run in the 11th century very similar you know chop a hand off for a thief, and so on and so forth. The problem is, that it, because it's linked so specifically with the religion, that now we're into the 21st century, just as we don't tend to do that in England anymore. If there's a country saying, well, we're good Muslims, so we're going to do that, it looks rather medieval, because it is medieval, and it worked fine in the Middle Ages, but we've got better solutions today. So let's move into the Ottoman Empire now, which takes us up basically to the 20th century. And what's interesting is, again, we get this Islamophobia because the phrase that I have deliberately avoided is Turk. And what's interesting is that is now an incredibly charged word because in the chronicles of the time, let's say the year is 1500, you might get something in France talking about the Turks and the leader, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, is the Grand Turk. This is because, originally, the very first leader, Osman, was indeed of Turkish origin, Turkic origin. He came from Central Asia. But even according to the legend around him, him and his sort of two, three hundred horsemen, that's not enough to create your own DNA or anything like that. And indeed, I've done the DNA analysis on my father's side, and funnily enough, pretty Ottoman in the sense that the the DNA comes from the Balkans, Bulgaria mainly, and also Arabia, which would make complete sense for the Ottoman Empire, but it doesn't mean there's any Turk in me. And indeed, like any empire, it gathered together soldiers and sailors, etc., from all around the empire. So there were literally thousands of Christians from Greece and Serbia, and yes, there were also Arabs, which are an ethnically different group of people to the Turks, from let's say Syria or somewhere like that so I find it brilliant and interesting that all these people are smooshed together the Kurds were incredibly loyal fighters for the Ottoman Empire that are now in a bitter war against the Republic of Turkey Another group is the Jewish community. When they were kicked out of Spain, they went to the Ottoman Empire and they were greeted warmly and they were able to practice their religion and set up the first printing press in the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople. And basically, Jews were able to have a successful life in the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, by the 19th century, a significant minority of the officer corps in the Ottoman Empire were Jewish, not Turks. In fact, it's almost impossible to find a Turk anywhere because all of the women of the harem didn't come from Islamic areas, and therefore they might be Ukrainian, they might be Bulgarian, and so on and so forth. And therefore, if every single sultan is the son of one of these women, that means by the time you get to the 20th century, they're not very Turkish at all. That is very, very different. So You get the phrase Turk, Turk, Turk mentioned all the time. It gets mentioned in other history. Podcaster, a very well-respected podcaster I'm not going to name. I sort of speak to them relatively infrequently, but we do communicate a little bit. And I did say, look, just a bit of feedback. You did talk about the Crimea War. This is in the 1850s. And you kept talking about the Turks. And that's not the same thing. The Ottoman army was not full of Turks. And they came out with a very nice response, very reasonable and sensitive response because they're doing a podcast about mary seacon so well basically i was using the term that she would have used and okay i get that that's fair enough but again that's it's just this kind of sort of laziness it's a bit like we do make the mistake of instead of talking about the soviet union fighting the nazis in world war ii we keep saying the russians now yeah there were a lot of russians there but let's not forget the tajiks and the ukrainians and the Azerbaijanis and so on and so forth anyway millions of those people fought so from that point into the 20th century Turks 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 and the Ottoman Empire was always seen as alien and other purely because they were Muslim even though they were capturing places and behaving in exactly the same way as the Holy Roman Empire or the kings of France or whatever but they were seen as othered basically, and indeed there's the exotic element as well, ooh, they got a harem, which by the way is from the Arabic haram, which means forbidden so pork is haram, and if you're not a member of the Ottoman family you're not allowed to go into that area of the palace, that's also haram that's where you get harim, okay, and the idea is that it's, it's just pleasure palace it was where the sultan lived and yes, little sultans were created, but that's not what they were only doing, they were administrators they were sometimes warriors and they would go on tours and so on and so forth they didn't spend all their time in the harem which a lot of people seem to think that they did so the other side of turk is we now get to the republic of turkey a country that never existed before and was basically created by ataturk father turk best turk whatever you want to call him mustafa Kemal was his actual name And he basically creates this rump state out of the end of the Ottoman Empire, and it's almost immediately invaded by Greece that wants to end it. Now, this is revenge for like 400 years of occupation, but unbelievably, with basically no help from the rest of the world, Ataturk and his army manages to beat the Greeks. So the Turks are incredibly proud of this, and they therefore politically go the other direction everybody's Turkish, this is definitely Turkish, Turkey, 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 and indeed my father would happily cut a vein to keep the Turkish red flag red with his own blood, okay, and yet he's not Turkish. So this idea that the Turks are somehow a genetic group like Caucasian or something like that, it's It doesn't exist. Anybody, if you walk around somewhere like Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and you look at the people, it's like, you could be Greek, you could be Italian, because, yeah, you probably all share the same DNA. It's worth remembering that in southern Italy, it was frequently raided and invaded by Arabs, and therefore there had to be some intermingling of the DNA going on there as well. A little later, into the partition of India, the British Empire is leaving and again, that's a whole topic. Maybe I'll do it at some point. it be interesting to see if I link it to pop culture. But the point is this. Basically, the Muslims don't want to be run by Hindus, and the Hindus don't want to be run by Muslims. There'd been a major Islamic power, the Mughal Empire, which originated by sort of the descendants of the Mongols that came in via Afghanistan. So there's some bad blood there. And India is, for the first time ever, carved up into three countries, Bangladesh and Pakistan had never existed before just like the Republic of Turkey and if you think that India gets on really well with its Muslim neighbours then you haven't been paying attention to any news or any Indian culture ever <laughs> because boy do they not get on and it's a sign of this fear of Islam exists in other places as well this is not just necessarily a western thing either it's interesting. That the single most famous thing in all of India is the Taj Mahal, which was created by Shah Jahan, and it's Muslim. He was one of these Mughals, and it's surrounded. If you look closely, it's got Islamic calligraphy around it. Those are excerpts from the Quran. So the single most famous thing in India is Muslim. So there we go. And look, I can I can keep running forwards. I'm going to give you two more examples and sort of finish it off there with a piece of very pop, pop culture, which makes you show that, yeah, there has to be a conversation around this. So we get to 2020 and we get to Macron trying to get reelected as the president of France and there's this sort of thing about is he flirting with the right because he's up against Marie Le Pen and she's becoming quite popular and she's basically the daughter of a real... ...fascist piece of work, Jem said as politely as he could. And so Macron said certain things that were basically basically questions, like hanging questions, like, in other words, is Islam compatible with the European way of life? And this sort of phrase has cropped up several times in the EU about should we let Turkey into the EU... One of the arguments being literally, but it's full of Muslims and that's, and it's, you know, in essence, Europe's a Christian club. That is literally been said by some leaders in Europe, which I think is a terrible argument because you're ignoring the millions of Muslims already living in the EU. And also, if you want to have an argument about why Turkey shouldn't be in Europe, it, in the EU, it's like, well, 5% of it in terms of its space is in Europe. The rest of it's in Asia or the Middle East. So maybe that's a better argument than just basically being islamophobic really i mean if that if if you change the word islam to sort of like a race then it's a racist statement simple as that so that's macron in 2020 but then we get the world cup in qatar the first time the world cup football world cup is run in a muslim country and quite rightly there were conversations about lgbtq plus rights going on, the fact that there a lot of migrant workers had died in the building of the infrastructure. These are absolutely valid comments, but none of it was put into the context of, but this is a typically Muslim country. Qatar itself is not militarily aggressive. It's not one of the bad guys in the Middle East, for starters. If anything, it annoys Saudi Arabia with owning Al Jazeera. So, in Islamic terms it's a sort of liberal country it's certainly very outward looking and this is the thing that i think that liberal people have to watch themselves it's like i have these liberal ideals you know love who you want to love i don't disagree with that by the way women should absolutely have rights and be able to drive cars again i i give you that but then you get people saying but i hate colonialism and i like i hate imperialism and people should respect local cultures okay but what happens when those two things clash because that's exactly what qatar is you know qatar is being true to itself but unfortunately that means that it has laws against being gay and if you're saying well we get to choose which laws you should and shouldn't implement how is that not colonialism it is what i'm saying is i don't have an answer I'm saying it's complicated, which nobody wanted to have a complicated conversation over. The other thing, as I've mentioned in passing with some of the other World Cups is, I did a whole episode on the World Cup, is other World Cups were really controversial. The second ever one was in fascist Italy. One of the main onlookers was Mussolini. Can we agree that Mussolini's Italy was worse than Qatar? Same with 1978 Argentina with the military hunter, junta, call it what you want, literally killing thousands of its own people, torturing them, suppressing any kind of popular uprising. I'm going to say that's worse than Qatar, but again, everybody went, nobody was really talking about it either, in 2012 when it happened in, in Rio, in Brazil, and you've got basically... Look, the Brazilians love football, but they were rioting basically saying, come on, you should be spending all these billions on infrastructure and getting us out of favelas rather than on a bunch of football games, which I don't argue with. Russia as well, 2018. You get the idea. So I think actually it was 2010, but it doesn't matter. You get the point that there have been other controversial World Cups, but people really didn't let it go with Qatar. And it culminated in a bit which I am going to say is outright Islamophobic, is when Argentina wins the World Cup. The whole world, perhaps apart from Brazil, was wishing that Messi, and and maybe Ronaldo as well, wishing that Messi could get that World Cup and be basically considered the greatest of all time. So it was a popular win for Argentina to win the World Cup. And then as he's getting the award, the emir, let's call them king, of Qatar... Hands him this black cloak with this gold brocade, this gold trim to it. That is called a bisht. And he gave it to Messi, and Messi sort of like accepted it and he put it on, which went obviously over his definitive or, or, or very distinctive Argentinian top. We have basically Messi accepting this cloak, for want of a better phrase, this semi opaque cloak, semi translucent cloak. And he puts it on over his Argentinian gear. And then the first photo of him holding the World Cup, the thing that people have been dreaming of him doing for more than 10 years. And obviously, he's younger than the last time Argentina won the World Cup. So there's all these sort of like things. But he's standing there with this cloak on. And lots of people say, oh, it's disgraceful. Why is he doing that? Oh, it's just the, the Arabs are like the Qataris trying to sort imprint once again. there image on on this world cup it's like well okay whoa 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 let's roll this back first of all yeah qatar absolutely has the right to it's happening in qatar but secondly and more importantly maybe do your homework because that cloak is called a bishd and a bisht is what you wear to keep the elements away so if somebody gives you their bisht, it is a sense of honor And I can't think of anything better from the Emir of Qatar to give to the world's greatest football player who's just crowned his entire career in his country to say, here, have this thing that means so much in our culture to say, well done. You know, this is something really personal from our entire country to you. Thank you. And that was not written that way anywhere. There were a lot of angry Arab people on Twitter going, this is just islamophobia why is nobody sort of like understanding what it meant everybody just assumed it was i don't know some kind of slur on Messi, and so yeah if you fell for that that's an example of the kind of latent bias that you might have against islam islam is a religion actually islam if you translate it it means one who submits it's all about Peace now. People go, oh well, yeah, but the, all these sort of things that happen, like ISIS and Al Qaeda. It's like, yeah, fine. There are terrible people who are Christians as well. There are a bunch of them trying to break into the capital on January the sixth, twenty twenty-one. You know that there people can use religion in all kinds of terrible and awful ways. And there's no doubt after 9-11 that was the most shocking terrorist attack in world history. But that doesn't—that's not the same thing. Of all Muslims are potential terrorists, and yet people have said that in the past and nobody sort of brought them up whereas if they'd said something similar about Jews they would have been brought up quite rightly about being anti-semitic so I'm going to ask you to hug a Muslim and high-five him ask him some questions find out more about the second largest religion in the whole world and it's fast growing too at some point it might well become the number one and indeed while Christianity is number one Let's just say that Baptists, Calvinists, Methodists, Catholics, Greek Orthodox, etc., they're not all big on brotherly love either, and will happily start a fight between each other. Whereas in Islam, there are largely two main sects, Sunni and Shia. So, there we go. We've taken Islamophobia, from the 700s AD right up to the World Cup in December 2022. And it's a sad thing to say that it's still out there. And sadly, it's a negative of popular culture in many different countries around the world. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, another episode coming soon.